Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. Uh, for months I've been saying we're continuing on through the book of 1 Peter. This morning I'll have to say we're coming to the conclusion, or we have come to the conclusion of 1 Peter. It's become a, a good friend to us. Uh, we're looking at 1 Peter 5, verses 12 through 14. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, ordering, or excuse me, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, your word promises that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. This morning we have gathered together to intentionally draw near to you, so we ask you to fulfill this promise. We're also told that if we seek you with all our heart, we will find you. So we are drawing near and we are seeking after you. And I pray that we will find you this morning. I pray that we will find you speaking to us and ministering to us. I ask that you will do that even now as your word goes forth. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. On October 29, 1941, Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England, visited Harrow School, private boarding school for boys that he attended back in 1888, and he went there to give an address to the student body. His speech was given as the United Kingdom continued in its fierce struggle against Nazi Germany. Ten months prior to this speech, the United States sent war materials to aid them during World War II. This is part of what uh, Sir Winston had to say to his uh, student body. I am addressing myself to the school. Surely from this period of ten months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never in nothing. Great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. His message was simple and direct. On another occasion, Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Now, as we come to the end of Peter's first epistle, his message is clearly one of perseverance in the midst of a fierce battle. He wants to say, never give in, regardless of how difficult it is. Keep going. Once again, let me draw your attention to how he ends this letter, verse 12. By Sylvanus, the faithful brothers, I regard him. I have briefly written to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In a sense, this is Peter's purpose statement for why he has written his letter. 
His desire is for the elect exiles of the dispersion to never give in, to keep going, regardless of the conflict that they are embroiled in. Now, as we come to the conclusion of this letter, it would be easy to skate right over it and, and to think, well, these are just formalities. Uh, you know, we can quickly move on to 2 Peter. But I think we need to slow down just a little bit because Peter has some important instructions for us, even right here at the end of the letter. And one of the things that he wants us to see is that we need to stand firm and we can stand firm. And if you're taking notes, we have three points. Stand firm, number one, in true grace. Stand firm, number two, in brotherly love. Stand firm, number three, in God's peace. So number one, stand firm in true grace. Verse 12, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. Uh, Sylvanus is better known to us as Silas, who was one of Paul's traveling companions on his missionary journeys. And Sylvanus is just a longer form of his shorter name, uh, Silas. And we understand that. We have the same thing in America today. You know, let's, let's say someone has the longer name of Zachariah Wayne. You know, often we don't, we don't use their longer name. Uh, Mom might use it when he's in trouble, but generally speaking, you know, we go with the shorter name, Zach, or maybe even shorter than that, just Z. But we had the same thing in our culture. Sylvanus was his longer name, and most understood him as Silas. And he's the one who delivered uh, this epistle. And don't overlook the fact that Peter commends him as a, a faithful brother. He served well on missionary journeys. He served well in the conflict that they've been going through. And then he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Exhorting and declaring, at the very least, says to me that Peter is in earnest as he writes this letter. And if you've been with us for the last few months, you know that makes sense because week after week after week, what has the topic been? Suffering hardship, adversity. And he is writing to believers who are in the midst of conflict and they are in desperate need of encouragement. And Peter is doing his best to exhort them and to declare to them the truths of God so that they can be built up. Now, I think it's fascinating how Peter describes his letter. He says, this is the true grace of God. What, what is this referred to? Most of the commentaries agree that this refers to the entirety of his letter. Isn't it interesting? He says, my letter is the true grace of God. What does that mean? Well, it means many things. First of all, I want you to notice that it's the grace of God. This indicates that Peter knows that he is writing inspired Scripture. This is grace that comes from God himself, and we'll get more into inspiration when we get into his second letter. But don't overlook it. This is the grace of God. Peter is writing this letter to encourage the believers, but God is also writing this letter to encourage the believers. This is a letter from God himself. And notice that it's the grace of God. This, this letter is 
grace. Maybe your perspective of Winston Churchill's speech is, is that it was, a, it was a pep talk to the, to the student body. It was meant to inspire. And as we look at Peter's letter, we can think this also is a letter meant to inspire and encourage. But I want you to see that while it is that, it is so much more than that. It is actually the grace of God. This letter itself is the grace of God. Now, what does, what does that mean practically? Practically speaking, it means that this letter contains strength to encourage you if you will receive it by faith. Think, think of God's word as spiritual protein that will build spiritual muscle. It is meant to strengthen you in the battle. Psalm 119.28 says, My soul melts away for sorrow. Can any of you relate to that? The psalmist is saying, My, my soul melts away for sorrow. I'm, I'm discouraged. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm, I'm worried. My soul melts away for sorrow. And then he says, and it's a prayer to God, Strengthen me according to your word. The psalmist is saying, my soul's melting away for start. Will you strengthen me according to your word, which clearly implies that strength comes from the word of God. There, there is strength to be found in God's word. But you have to believe it. That's the caveat. You have to believe it. Romans fifteen thirteen, May the God of all hope fill you with all Joy and peace. Here's the key. In believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In believing what? In believing in the promises of God as they are revealed in the pages of Scripture. And as you believe in God, as he reveals himself in his word, you will abound in joy. Excuse me. You will abound in all joy and peace while you believe. That's so important. And as you believe, what else will happen? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So as you believe In God's word, the Holy Spirit will work in your life so that you are abounding in hope. So that it's just overflowing. And you're just bouncing as you go throughout your day because you're you're abounding in the hope of God that came through his word by the power of the Spirit. God's word is not like a student's textbook designed just to give give us information on a a subject, history, social studies, humanity, whatever it might be. It is that, but perhaps, perhaps, consider this, the greatest blessing that comes from the word of God is that it mediates the presence and power of God. Perhaps that's the greatest blessing. You read God's word. You trust it. 
you believe it. And then the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself, is unleashed in your life. He talks to you. He ministers to you. He enters into your heart so that you're abounding in hope. Perhaps that is the greatest of all blessings. God's word pulls down God himself and he comes and he meets with you wherever you are. It might be in a service. You might be in your prayer closet, wherever that is. And God in his glory shows up. What could possibly be greater than that? God comes down. That's what I think he says is happening here. It, this is the picture that I have. We, we find it in Isaiah 64, 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known among your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Isn't that our prayer? That the word of God would go forth, God would render the heavens, come down, cause the mountains to tremble, cause his adversaries to tremble before him. And I think God is saying he does that through his word. That's the power that's found in God's word. And of course, not only do God's adversaries tremble at his presence, but God's people also tremble at his presence. And Peter says, this is true grace. This is true grace. Grace, and I can't think of a greater grace than for God's word to go forth while it's being read and proclaimed, and God himself shows up and ministers to us in a mighty way. How are you going to stand firm? You're going to do it, number one, in true grace. Number two, you're going to do it in brotherly love. Brotherly love. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Uh, we talked about Mark last week, so I won't mention him again. Uh, just to say, I forgot to add that he was the author of the gospel of Mark, so you need to know that well. But we talked about Mark last week. We talked about his, his, his failure, but then we thought, talked about how he was restored by Barnabas and how God used him in a mighty way. And, and my prayer is that all of you were encouraged by that because you could see that even if you've stumbled, even if you have blown it, you can get up again, dust yourself off, and, and God, God will use you. So now we have this reference to she who is in Babylon. She who is in Babylon. Most commentators agree that this is not a reference to an individual person like Peter's wife, but rather this is a reference to the church, and uh, most likely that is correct. Uh, most commentators like R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Wayne Grudem believe that Babylon is a code name for Rome. Uh, so it seems clear to me that Babylon is a code name for Jerusalem. Just wanted to make sure you're with me. I do think it's Jerusalem, and I'll just let you know I'm going against 
most of the commentators, uh, but I do believe it's Jerusalem. And here's my argument. Stay with me. It's not that sophisticated. I think even the kids can figure it out. Uh, this is what Wayne Grudem says in his, his commentary. It is best to understand Babylon is a reference to Rome. And then, and then parentheses, he puts, just as in Revelation 16, 19, 17, 5, 18, 2. So what Grudem and other commentators are saying is the reference to Babylon here is the same reference we have to Babylon in the book of Revelation. And I say, amen, I agree 100%. So now we have to ask the question, who is the Babylon in the book of Revelation? Uh, Revelation 18.21, this is what we read. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into, into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be. Mark that. Babylon is referred to as a great city. And then we're told that Babylon will be thrown down with violence. Revelation 18, 24. And in her, continuing to talk about Babylon, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. In what city do we find the blood of the prophets and the blood of the saints? In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then just to put the final nail in the coffin, Revelation 8, or excuse me, 11, 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city. So again, we're still talking about the great city, which we saw earlier was Babylon, that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, for obvious reasons. It's called Sodom because of its immorality. It's called Egypt because of its rebellion against God. And it's also symbolically called Babylon for the same reason. And then we read uh, the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? In what city was Jesus crucified? You didn't even have to go to seminary to know that Jesus was crucified in the city of Jerusalem. So she who is at Babylon is the church that is in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem at this time is enduring severe persecution. And they're sending greetings to Peter's audience, encouraging them to continue on because they're all in this struggle together. And then in verse 14, we read, greet one another with the kiss of love. One commentator said that this would be a, a kiss between men and men and women and women. It was a common greeting in the first century and it was supposed to be an expression of love, of course, which is what makes Peter's kiss of betrayal to Jesus, so atrocious. It was supposed to represent love, but it represented uh, betrayal. And uh, Peter tells them to greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, if I can just pause here for a moment. Uh, not one of you guys, this morning, on the way in, gave me the kiss of, not one of you, not a single one of you greeted me with the with a kiss of love. 
Now, uh, I'm going to go against many of the commentators at this point, uh, and just, just hear me out, but many of the commentators say this was a cultural expression of love. And I say, let's be careful. Because in other places where we have something in Scripture, and people say, well, that's just cultural, we're like, well, well wait a second. You just can't say, it's cultural, cultural, we can wave, we can wave our hands. I think we need to be very careful. You know, what are we saying? It's cultural. You know, we can greet one another with a high five. You know, that's, that's, that's sufficient. Here's something to consider in all seriousness. When you die and see Jesus for the first time, face to face in glory, are you going to give him a high five? Or are you going to want to embrace him? I think I'm going to want to fall down, brace his feet, and kiss his feet. Um, I, I think, uh, at the very least, uh, Wayne Grudem has a good, a good take on this passage. He says, Such a kiss was free from romantic overtones, since Paul always calls it a holy kiss. Although we may dismiss this as simply a custom belonging to first century culture, we would do well to recognize the benefits of interpersonal relationships which come from such close, close physical expressions of friendship and fellowship in Christ. It is much harder to get mad at someone you have just hugged and kissed. And it is much easier to feel accepted in a fellowship which has given such a warm welcome. And then he quotes the Phillips translation. Give each other a handshake all round is far too distant and formal. Probably a holy hug would come much closer to fulfilling Peter's intention. And it should be a genuine expression of love in Christ. Peter's concern, at the very least, is that the believers in the body would express their their love for one another, that they would be in, in earnest for one another. And even this morning, we, we were praying that those entering into our church would, would sense that this is a community of, of love. And they would understand that we truly are family. And if we truly are family, we will be affectionate towards one another in, in appropriate ways. And, and we need that because we... We stand strong together, and the more love there is in the body of Christ, I think we all understand, the more we will be able to stand firm, regardless of what may come our way. So to stand firm, uh, we do so in true grace. We do so in, in brotherly love. And, and number three, we do so in God's peace. And then he concludes by saying, Peace to all of you. Who are in Christ. Uh, you've heard it said that peace is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of God. I believe that. If you're taking notes, that's worth writing down. I really mean that. Peace is not the absence of conflict, it is the presence of God. And this is technical, but I think it's important. As we read this, I don't think it's a prayer. Peter's not praying. May peace be with you. I think it's a statement of fact. For what it's worth, I was reading John MacArthur, and he agrees with me. 
or I agree with him, however you want to look at. And he says, this is a statement of fact. Now, why is that significant? Because I believe what Peter is saying is that you already have peace. He's not praying that they might have it or would have it somewhere in the future. He is saying you already have it. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And the Holy Spirit brings to you peace. What is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 and following? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. If you have peace, He Himself produces that in your lives. And when you experience peace in the midst of difficulties, that's because the God of peace Himself is making Himself known to you and ministering to you. In other words, I don't want you to think that peace is just some kind of abstract concept. I want you to understand that peace is God with you. I believe literally it is the presence of God. And when God comes to you, you can experience peace in the worst times of your, of your life. In just a little while, we're, we're going to sing the well-known hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, but before we sing that, I, I would like you to know the, the story behind that. Some of you know it, but I want all of you to know it because it really is a, a wonderful story. Uh, the hymn was written by Horatio Spafford, a successful attorney and real estate investor. And he lost a fortune in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Around the same time, his beloved four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Thinking that a vacation would do his family some good, he sent his wife and four daughters on a ship to England, planning to join them after he finished some pressing business at home. However, while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was involved in a terrible collision with another ship and sank. More than 200 people lost their lives, including all four of Horatio's precious daughters. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy. Upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to her husband that began, Saved alone. What shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England. At one point during the voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had struck the Spafford family, summoned Horatio to tell him that they were now passing over the spot where the shipwreck had occurred. As Horatio thought about his daughters, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind. And then he wrote them down. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. How can we account for a peace like that that transcends all understanding? That peace is none other than the presence of God showing up 
when we need the peace of God most in our lives. I know many of you need peace. I want you to know that you have peace within you, but you also can at the same time ask God for more peace. Philippians 4, 5 and following. The Lord is at hand. In other words, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And what's the promise? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you anxious? God is near. If you're anxious about your, your marriage or the fact that you're not married, or if you're anxious about your kids or your parents, if you're anxious about your finances, if you're anxious about your health, if you're anxious about your job situation, if you're anxious about anything, we're told what to do. Bring your anxiety before God and bring them with thanksgiving. Tell God that you're so thankful that you can bring his request before you. I love saying that in prayer. Lord, I am so thankful that I can bring my anxieties, my cares to you. Sometimes I think, what do people do who aren't Christians? What do you do with your anxieties? I don't know, bury them, drown them in a bottle of booze? What, what do you do? I am so thankful And you should be too. If you're a Christian, you have a place, you have a God that you can go to and bring those anxieties to. Bring your anxieties to him with thankfulness. Thankfulness that he cares. Thankful that he's present. Thankful that he will answer in his perfect time according to his good pleasure. Thankful that he works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Bring your anxiety before him and thank him and thank him and thank him. And see if peace doesn't show up and minister to you. I pray that it will. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, which, as Peter tells us, is the true grace of God. We thank you for this grace. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning that you will strengthen them according to your word and I pray that in the midst of their unbelief that you will help them to believe so that they can experience joy and peace and abound in hope as the Holy Spirit is unleashed in their in their lives and I pray for the love in this body I thank you for the love that is in this church and I I pray that it would increase and grow all the more and we thank you for your peace which resides in us Jesus told his disciples before he was going to go away, my peace I leave with you. Not peace is the world, my peace I give you. And now we understand clearly that when he gave the disciples peace, what he meant is he was giving them the Holy Spirit. So we thank you for the peace that is in our lives. And, and I pray that all here who are anxious will bring those anxieties to you with thanksgiving. And I want to ask you, to minister to them profoundly. And I pray that they could experience your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.
this point, we're going to come to the Lord's